subject this morning is declaring war on the exclusiveness of the Lord's church. Now, if you folks in the bleachers back yonder can't hear it, I'll have them turn the volume up some. But anyway, the word for war means to oppose, contend against, attack, continuously assail, show hostility towards. The word exclusiveness means marked by a character or quality which distinguishes the person, the thing, or the group of persons or things so qualified from others as in value and excellence. And so the war against the church is to oppose, to change, to corrupt, to criticize, to ridicule that which was established by the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and purchased by his blood, Matthew 16, 18, Acts 20, 28. God has always demanded his people to be exclusive. He spent 4,000 years in impressing upon the Jews the principle of separation. And they were not in America, for example, with those who were not members of the tribe of Israel. They were not to associate with those who were given over to idolatry. And they were to discern between holy and profane and the clean and unclean, Ezekiel 44, 23. And thus the same principle applies to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ today. In 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul said, Come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you, will be to you a father, and you shall be to me sons and daughters, saith the Lord of mercy. And therefore these promised, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfection, holiness in the fear of God. And then Paul said to the Corinthians, I fear lest by any means, as the serpent of God leaves, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity which is in Christ. Now the first topic is the exclusiveness of the Lord's church. In Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And thus, how many Christ is the Christ? Well, one. How many sons is the one uh, Christ? Just one. And thus, in uh, Colossians 1.18, Paul said that he is the head of the body of the church. And thus, the death of the article indicates one neck. And so then, anybody can understand that the head is one head, and the body is one body, you ought to understand that the church is one church instead of 300. And so Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 shows that further what Paul meant when he said there is one body and one spirit. Even if you call it one hope, you call it one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so if we have a multiplicity of bodies, we have a multiplicity of Christ and of God and the Holy Spirit, which we do not. And in Romans 12, 4 and 5, Paul said, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office or function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 suggests that we are baptized into one body, and thus that's the church. So the Lord's church is composed of a peculiar people. In Titus 2, 14, uh, that's what Paul said. And so then that means that they are distinctive, that they are special, that they are singular, and thus characteristic of only one as a person. And so the church is uh, uh, peculiar or exclusive 
on the standpoint of art. He started on Pentecost, the first after Christ was raised from the dead. About A.D. 33 in Jerusalem and any other church, started by anybody else than Christ and anywhere else than Jerusalem, is not and cannot be the Lord's church. It's the Jewian name. And so we call Christians first to Antioch, 11:26. And Peter said, If any man suffer the Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this day. And as far as the rule of faith is concerned, we accept the New Testament. And that only as our rule of faith and practice, and God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to not to him that call it by his own glory and virtue. And then we have to contend earnestly for the faith which were once called to live without the saints. And then the church is the Cuban organization. In Philippians 1.1, Paul addressed himself to the saints at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, and thus he set forth as the simplicity of the local congregation. And it's the peculiar worship. And the Lord said to the woman that the time will come, the hour, in which they are not worshipped here in this mountain or in Jerusalem. But there's a worship, we worship God in spirit and in truth, for God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, and that's what we try to do according to the written word of God. And then it's the peculiar plea for unity, and not union, but unity. The Lord prayed for that in John 17, and said, Neither for our these alone, but for all of them who shall believe on me through thy word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And thus one of the greatest hindrances to world conversion is the unity, I mean disunity, and the division that exists in the religious world. And then Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, but that should be perfect to join together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I know why people can't understand little four-way letter words like same. I was in Nashville uh, many dumb years ago, and a fellow mentioned to some of me about we ought to oppose Catholicism. I said, we ought to have unity first. And I mentioned that verse. He said, that's too ideal. That's stupid. I didn't tell him that, but anyway, that was. And then in doctrine also. So Paul said in First Corinthians 4, 6, these things have been transferred to myself and a father and a figure, that in us you might learn not to go beyond the thing which is written. And thus we are confined to the word of God. And then Paul left Timothy in uh, Ephesus that he might teach some that they teach no other doctrine. And so then that establishes the exclusiveness of the Lord's church which is clearly set forth in the scriptures and should not be misunderstood by anybody. And then some examples now. I want to put this first because I don't want to leave this out. Uh, examples of those who war against the exclusiveness of the Lord Church. Since uh, Adam was a boy, Satan has been the enemy of God Almighty and mankind. In Job 1.7, the Lord asked Satan, when goes that? He said, I'm going from walking to and fro in the earth and up and down in it. And so it's been doing so ever since, but the trouble is he is now going to and fro in the church and not simply in the world. So the Old Testament prophets were killed, Romans 11, 3, Paul quotes from Elijah, and that says, uh, all those torn down, the prophets were killed, 
and nobody left me now. He thought of it, but I said, but what? And so then uh, they have opposed the Lord. And thus the enemies have tried to inside the Lord Jesus Christ time and time again and did everything they could to condemn him. And then in First Thessalonians 2.15, Paul said they killed the Lord and they have killed his prophets. So you see there's opposition. Now the denominational world declares war on the church. And so they came along 1,500 years too late to be the Lord's church. And thus the result, they result from a disrespect for the word of God. And thus if they had saved with the word of God, there couldn't be any such thing. And so then we could not exist. They couldn't without perversions, which Paul condemns vociferously in Galatians 1, 6 to 9. And thus the New Testament forbids any variation from the word of the Lord. And thus Paul said, I marvel you so soon removed with him that called you in the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, that is not another the same kind. And but there are those that trouble you and would pervert. Pervert means to deviate from the true right to the regular corrupt the gospel of Christ, and so they do in order to exist. Now, God has not ever allowed anybody to take liberties with his word. In Deuteronomy 4, 2, he said, you're not to add to, not take from, and not to tax. 5.32 says you're not to go to the right hand or the left. And so God has always forbidden that. And thus, the New Testament forbids the variation too, as we just read from Galatians 1, 6, beginning. And then, whosoever goeth onward and abides not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Second John 9. Now, in the message this is, I've got three of them, 1894, 1910, 1944. In article number 22 says this, It is not necessary that all rites and ceremonies should in all places be the same or exactly like, for they have always been different and may be changed according to the diversity of countries, times, and men's manners. And then the Baptist Manual, uh, Standard Manual of Baptist Churches by his cup, says this, It is most likely that in the apostolic age, when there was but one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and no differing denominations existed, the baptism of a convert by that very act constituted him a member of the church and at once endowed him with all the rights and privileges of full fellowship. In that sense, baptism was the door into the church. Now it is different. But who made it different? And if uh, he says there's one faith, when there was but one faith, one Lord, I want to say more now, more Lord, more Baptist well. And then, so then, some brethren are now copying those fellows. And it's nothing new. About 60 years ago or so, I have reported of O.H. Tallman of the Manhattan Church and Odell Myers of the Fletcher New York Church, and they uh, opposed the Lord's Church very strongly. And they said, in brief, the inspiration of the Bible does not mean infallibility. They said the Bible is full of error and very fallible. And number two, they said there are a great many true Christians who have not been immersed. And then the instrumental music is entirely in the realm of indifference. And then he said, Churches of Christ composed just one more denomination 
and the fruits of our labors are neither superior nor inferior to the fruits of any other denomination. And when Myers was asked why he didn't go down the street to the Presbyterian Church, he says they have already arrived at where I want to go. And in other words, I'm going to stay with the Church of Christ, they to run me off to try to bring it up to the level of the denominational church. And that's what Odell Myers and, and uh, O.H. Thomas said back many years ago. Then G.C. Brewer, in the book at such and goes, that wants to lighten, uh, <clears throat> quoted from uh, W.P. Reed and Jade, uh, 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 Reed and Edder, and why they changed the fellowship from the Lord's Church to the Congregational Church. And they said, or he said, the attitude of the Church of Christ, and quoted them, at this point constitutes her greatest sin. She has crystallized her conception of God and Christ and the plan of salvation and all the rest into a closed, completed pattern, and by so doing identifies these conceptions with the total truth on these subjects. This is wrong. It is not right to identify truth with our conception of truth. The attitude on the part of the Church of Christ makes her intolerant and causes the good that is in her to defeat the best that she could or might have. This attitude closes the door against all progress and forbids the bossing of any newly discovered truth. I wonder where they're going to scuff. Because the Holy Spirit revealed all truth through the apostles. This is exactly what the Pharisees did in our Savior's day, and this is the cause of his break within. And thus it sounds like men who are ridiculing the church now and seeking sweeping changes have been sitting at their feet. And the change agents have said it looks like on the reader and at it. Now then, compare this following with from Ralph Graham, who used to be a gospel preacher and left the Church of the Lord and became minister of the First Christian Church in Colorado City, Texas. And so on the June 20, 1965, in the bulletin, he said, Beside the strong opposition to my views, that is by brethren, I discovered that I was in complete disagreement with the aim, views, message, method, and attributes attitudes, rather, which characterize the Church of Christ. I concluded that in all these areas the position of the Church of Christ was incorrect theologically, philosophically, psychologically, or to be quite practical, unscriptural, irrational, and unhealthy. Now these are strong criticisms leveled against the Church for which the Savior died. And thus it seems that those critics who are clamoring for change have set the feet of Ralph Graham and these other fellows, and thus since the same sounds are being heard during the 1990s. And thus it can be seen that such attacks are not new upon the church. Now then, in 1966, Robert Myers put out a book called Voices of Concern, and uh, in which he gave articles from 17 disgruntled members of the church and uh, included also Ralph Graham and W.P. Reed, and the influence introduction Myers seems to emphasize that those leaders who are high in formal education 
have enough sense to lead the church in the right direction, and churches would commit intellectual suicide if they were to do without this. He implies that they would not be coerced into yielding to orthodoxy. And so his reasoning was parallel to some present-day liberals that we must widen our horizons and make changes instead of looking back to the patterns set forth in the Bible. Now, there are many innovations of war against the church, and I'll just mention these briefly, and played this throughout the years. Of course, the Missionary Society and the Mechanical Instrumental News question back in the midst of the last century uh, certainly hindered the church. Then there came this century, the one cutters and the anti-class and anti-women teachers group. And then there was a revival of the premillennialism in 1940s by R.H. Bold, E.L. Jorgensen, and others. And then in 1950s, the anti-orphan home and anti-cooperation uh, position, which in the 1950s left the church bleeding and torn asunder and filled with hatred and strife. And when Cogburn's had began their tirades against these affairs. And so then they have followed Ketchicide, Leroy Garrett, and Daniel Sommer in their contention. And if I'm not mistaken, Brother Max a lot older than I am, and maybe he can remember whether Tant and Cogdell used to oppose Ketchicide and uh, Garrett and Sommer. Probably did, Brother Max. And so then, then there came along in the uh, 70s, 60s, 70s, campus advance and uh, campus uh, evangelism, which sought to captivate the minds of the young people. And there are many things you say about that. And now then, there's Mission Magazine, uh, some years ago, in integrity, which would pervert the worship and destroy the Church of the Lord. Then there came the Crossroads Movement in the Boston Church International. And of course, they gained... Uh, fame by being on 2020 some months ago, in which I believe Hugh Downs exposed the cross, or rather the Boston image. And now then we are plagued with the new image and the witness, I mean the wineskin magazine. Now, on uh, <clears throat> June the 2nd, 1969, John McRae, then a professor at David Lipson College, wrote a lengthy article in the National Tennessee and entitled Church Unity is Still a Tall Order. And in this article, he was critical of the Church of the Lord and advocated unity and diversity. And this was the resume of a sermon he preached at the Otter Creek Church in Niceville. It revealed a spirit of compromise with the sectarian world that is being espoused by a number of liberal-minded brethren now. And even more so in 1995, well, that's now. And so a few of his ideas are given for consideration here to further show that many are headed in the wrong direction and in their efforts to lead the church astray and into apostasy. So he says, in recent years there has been a healthy trend toward more emphasis on unity among Christians, a trend sparked principally by the Catholic Church. Examples of mergers of denominations were given. And in no biblical sense can any modern denomination be classed as Christianity. And none of them are willing to be governed solely by the Scriptures. And also, as far as the people of the Catholic Church are concerned, they are honest, I'm sure, but they are badly deceived for the most part. And history shows that the Roman Catholic hierarchy 
has been one of the bitterest enemies of the Bible and Christianity. And even some of their writers attest their abomination. The only kind of unity the Catholic Church desires is that everyone surrender to the Catholic dictates and submits to the Pope of Rome. And so it borders on blasphemy to even suggest that Catholicism is Christianity. And in any wise compare it with the Lord's Church. Now then, Macri is critical of the worship of the Church, and he said, there is no one place in the New Testament where it is set out how Christians shall worship. Nor is an example given where early church worship in these ways. So he says we just go through the New Testament, pick out what we want, and eliminate the rest of it. And further he says that if we ever hope to have the unity we have preached, we are obligated to come to some willingness to make concessions ourselves. How much are we willing to give up in the interest of unity? And further says we are not willing to give up something. Unity is no more than a fragile dream. Yes, how much of our tradition are we willing to forego in the interest of United Brethren? Unless we're willing to lay something on the line, something of our tradition, we can talk about unity all we want to, but nobody's listening. We must be willing to come halfway. And bless your life, love of it, honey. And so MacRae added, finally, unity can only come about if Christians become undenominational and define oneness in religion as unity in diversity. How many are parroting this today? And I suppose we had the diversity in time on the part of everyone in the central time zone, for example. Talk about chaos and confusion. If everybody went his own way at his own time, might as well argue that a grain of corn can bring forth a diversity of crops as to argue for unity and diversity. And so among the ladies who seek to corrupt the Lord's church and lead them to apostasy is the staff of this magazine called Wineskins and those associated with it. The main character, of course, is Rube Shetty. He used to be a good, sound gospel preacher when he was in Memphis, but he went off, and his brother McNair said he got educated above his intelligence, and that ruined it. And, and so like Robert Myers, he was ruined by so-called higher education. Shelley has gone on record as being very critical of the Church of the Lord. He is credited with having made the statement that my children will not stay with the church I grew up in. They will not be a part of an irrelevance. He believed the idea of a pattern for the church in the first century. He belittled it rather, belittled it, made fun of it. And now he denies that the church ever existed except in the mind of God. He ridicules the idea that the church has ever been restored by the great pioneer preacher. He compares those who claim that the church has been restored in Laodicea to those in Laodicea, and he said the kingdom is not the church, and the church is not the kingdom, they are not identical. He was clear that the restoration movement as being extremely self-serving and arrogant, and his statement that the church is irrelevant makes it worthless, and thus Christ died for a worthless, irrelevant institution, if you can believe it. Now, the venerable Foy Wallace, Jr. made this statement in his book, Bull, What You Think, volume 1, page 210. And thus he said, 
out of the church and evil, out of the church estranged, out of the church not reconciled, in the church reconciled, in the church of citizens, saved out of the church, saved without being a Christian, saved out of the church, saved as an alien, saved out of the church, saved as a stranger, saved out of the church, saved without reconciliation. Saved out of the church, saved without the promises, saved without God, saved without Christ, and saved without hope, based upon the Ephesian letter. <clears throat> now then, the denominational world and other liberals war against the church as God's eternal purpose. The Ephesian letter is the greatest treatise on the church in the Bible, and one of my favorite books, of course. But in the third chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul sets forth the eternal purpose of God insofar as the church is concerned. And in the third verse, uh, chapter 3, he says, uh, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery in a few words. Where the church of the Lord is a part of the mystery of God. And a mystery is something that cannot be found out except by divine intervention in this case. Now, then, a few people I know of in the religious world deny that Christ planned, or that God planned for Christ to come in the world, to save the world, to die for it. And Genesis 3.15 gives a veil prophecy of that, and Isaiah 53 gives a detail prophecy, 31 to 32 points, that minutely describe the Christ's suffering and uh, what he was to do. And thus the mystery was not understood in ages past. And even angels decided to look into it, the Apostle Peter said. The prophets didn't understand what they wrote, even though they did predict it. And thus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of Satan. Hebrews 2.14, the word destroy there comes from katageo, which does not mean to annihilate, or to fasten the living, but to break the yoke of, the curtail the power of Satan. And he has done that. The devil has no power over anybody unless he lets him have it. And in 1 Peter 5, the apostle says, The devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. And as long as we stay in the faith, not a faith, but the faith, then Satan has no power over us. And then moving back to the third chapter of the of Ephesians, Paul said unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, who then entered now on the principality of the house, in heaven, things might be made known by or through the church the manifold wisdom of God. And thus the church of the Lord was a part of the mystery the same as the coming Christ was. I've often thought in my own feeble mind about Satan back in uh, Genesis 3.15 when God gave that veil prophecy concerning Christ that he would bruise the head of the serpent, the serpent bruised his heel. Satan wondered what that meant. And then when the first animal sacrifice was offered, he wondered what that meant. And so for 4,000 years about, 
all this multiplies thousands and thousands of bloody sacrifices offered, Satan had a big question mark in his mind as what does that mean? He didn't know. It was a mystery. But then when he led wicked men to crucify the Son of God and shed his blood, then he knew what it meant, but it was too late. The blood of Christ was shed and defeated faith. And so then the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of the mystery. Now don't misunderstand. The death of Christ and the shedding of his blood were important, very important, as well as the resurrection from the dead. But the gospel plan of salvation was not consummated when Christ died upon the cross. It was consummated in the church of the Lord. And thus Christ brings about salvation in the church. And therefore to oppose the church of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures is to oppose God's eternal purpose. And that's included in the death of Christ, Acts 20 and 28. Now then, uh, the nomination and other liberals warred against the church in prophecy. It's not necessary. If the church is not necessary, God used a lot of space unnecessarily, needlessly. And thus I mentioned briefly two prophecies in Daniel 2, 31 to 44. You don't know about the four empires there. And that the kingdom was to be established during the fourth one, the Roman rule. The premillennialists reject the prophecy of Christ, and they make the kingdom the future. And thus they reject the testimony of 84 inspired preachers. John the Baptist preaching was here. Christ had preached the same thing. He sent forth the twelve and the seventy. And 84 preachers preaching the kingdom was ready to come, and they denied and said the Lord established the church and said, of course, the church and the kingdom the same thing. And thus the kingdom existed in the first century. For in Colossians 1.13, Paul said, we are delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God, dear Son. We couldn't do it if it didn't exist. And then in Hebrews 12.28, has them received the kingdom. And then in Revelation 1.9, John was in the kingdom. And in Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, Isaiah predicts that in the last days that God will establish his house on top of the mountain, and uh, all nations shall flow unto out of Zion shall go forth the Lord and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so we read in Acts 2, 17, where Peter says that this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel is to come to pass in the last days. And I think the last days, brothers, of Joel are the same as that of Isaiah. And so then right there was the time and the place for the establishment of the church. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house. First Timothy 15 says the Lord's house is the church. Heard a preach over in Crossville, Tennessee many years ago, preaching on the church. That right there, down there in the Jordan River is where the church started. Well, Isaiah said it will be in the top of the mountain, not in the valley. And Jerusalem is located in the top of the mountain. And Zion shall go forth the law. And then Zechariah 1 and 16 says, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercy. I will build my house in it. And thus God has sense enough to build the church where he laid the foundation. And Christ in, in uh, uh, Isaiah 28 16, in connection with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, 
and the crucifixion, God said, I will lay in Zion a foundation, a tried stone, a proved stone, a precious cornerstone. And thus the foundation was laid in Jerusalem. And therefore God built the house on the foundation. Well, you've got better sense than that to put foundation in one place and build a house somewhere else. And ought to give God to have much credit as sense we have. And so it's in the top of the mountain. And thus he said, they big dogs above the hill. I think of the church is not compared to little hills, but the other institutes. And that sets forth the preeminence of the church, which I may mention later. And all nations, Jew and Gentile, shall flow unto it. And we know that that's the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. And out of sound shall go forth the law. Well, the new law, Romans 8 and 1 and 2. And then, so the nominational world has set different estimates as to the time of the church starting. Adam, some say Abraham's day, some say John the Baptist, some when Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, others in the upper room. But the church could not have been established before Christ died upon the cross. Because if it were, it have no head, the head is but. When God raised him from the dead and set him in his whole right hand, heaven place, and gave him to be the head of all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So Christ became the head of the church after his resurrection. There'd be no blood. Be a bloodless institution, Acts 20 and 28. Christ shed his blood for the church. There'd be no Holy Spirit. John 7, 38 and 39. Christ said the Holy Spirit is not yet given because the Son is not yet glorified. In Luke 24, 26, ought not Christ to have suffered and enter his glory? So Christ didn't enter his glory until after crucifixion, and the Holy Spirit didn't come. There'd be no gospel in Matthew 16, 20. The Lord forbade the apostles to preach him until he was raised from the dead. And then there'd be no foundation, for the foundation was not laid until Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. Isaiah 28, 16, and then Matthew 16, when it said, Upon this rock, I'll build my church. He wasn't talking about Peter. Peter hadn't been raised from the dead. Christ was. And thus Christ is the foundation. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, For other foundation can no man lay, than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. And so then Isaiah 28, 15 to 18 teaches there, and that they would make covenant death and agreement hell. And the agreement hell should not stand. The covenant of death would not either. Christ be raised from the dead, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, and he would build his church. And in that connection, God would lay the foundation. Now then, so the liberals and change agents warred against, it's not time to use this, the importance of the church. Don't remember he wasted 10 minutes of mine to start with. And so then, but I'll just make it so briefly that the church is important. And because the church, all spiritual blessings are in the church. Reconciliation, there, redemption, and forgiveness, access to God, blessings of citizenship, members of God's family, built on the solid foundation, Ephesians 2.20. We are part of the temple where the worship takes place, and we are priests in the temple. And so by way of contrast, so out of the church, are dead and trespassed with sin. They are children of disobedience, without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant province, and having no hope without God in the world. And thus the change agents war against the preeminence of the church. 
The church is preeminent. And uh, that means it's above everything. And so since Christ is far above, Christ is far above all things, and the body of Christ is the church, then where are you going to put the church? You can't divorce the church from Christ. And thus some people have the church way down here and play it down, play Christ up. You can't play Christ up without playing the church up. And thus he's head over all things to the church, and thus has authority over it. There are many men who are parents or fathers of children, but never a father to a child. And so then the church is the fullness of Christ. That means literally fills up. And everything we can have a way of salvation is found in the church of the Lord. He's the Savior of the body, and he gave himself for the Ephesians 5. Now then, I want to get to this. Brother Moses, don't call me now like you're done with this anyway. Now that new hermeneutic declares war against the church. And so the liberals are embracing false doctrines of sectarians and hold that since culture changes and maybe weather patterns change, that God's word needs to be changed too. And I believe this is the warnings that are found in the Bible against changing. And thus to think God, the God of heaven, the God that created the universe, didn't have sense enough, nor wisdom enough, nor judgment enough to write a book that's good for all men in all ages. That's reflected upon the intelligence, integrity, and upon the wisdom of God Almighty. And thus they ignore the word, the word and the spirit that command uh, speaking the same thing. Paul said, let us walk by the same rule, mind the same thing, and then he said, preach the same thing he did. Now the advocate by advocating change, the advocates are opening the floodgate for all kinds of error. And so concerning the advocates of the new hermeneutics, Robert R. Taylor wrote this pertinent uh, passage in his bulletin, October the 9th, 1994. It is my reason judgment that this will be the most far-reaching error in the widespread consequence that we have faced in this century. If the new hermeneutic is sold, then subjectivity has won the victory, and objective truth is no longer of any serious measure. It means that the battle against instrumental music is over permanently. It means that we have no serious defense against women preachers. It means that all distinction between churches of Christ and popular denominations are now ended with permanency. It means that there is no legitimacy at all to the restoration plea, remove patent authority from the New Testament, and there is no valid base at all for speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. Holding Bible things by Bible names and doing Bible things in Bible ways, no longer will gospel preachers be able to say 